0: All right, so last week we finished up our look at the life and ministry of Elijah in the Old Testament as Elijah handed the baton of prophetic ministry to his disciple Elisha uh, before he was taking himself up in a whirlwind to heaven. I told you last week that we need to be like Elisha as disciples, faithful learners, faithful followers uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately, but of someone who is teaching us and leading us here on this earth I told you also that we need to be like Elijah as a disciple maker. We need to be quick to look behind us and say, hey, is there someone who I can help out along the race and uh, be teaching them and showing them what it looks like to follow after Jesus? I told you that all of this discipleship, this relational discipleship, happens as we walk together as believers. We saw that in the text last week, that Elijah and Elisha talked as they walked together. And so we cannot do this kind of discipleship in isolation we cannot do it uh, without intentionality. So we need to seek these things and pursue them. I told you that these guys, Elijah and Elisha, had an interesting and exemplary relationship. But I told you ultimately someone better than Elijah has come. We are not called out to be disciples of Elijah or Elisha. You are not ultimately being called out to be a disciple of Chris or Joe, or Matt, or your Sunday school teacher. We are ultimately called to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, to learn from Him, and to follow Him, to walk as He walked. Well, this week, uh, we are going to move into the New Testament to see an incredible scene where Elijah makes another appearance. It's a surprising appearance on a different mountain. We've seen Elijah up on a mountain a few times, and we will see him on another mountain today. Now, to be clear, this passage in Matthew chapter 17 is all about Jesus. It is not primarily about Elijah or about Moses. It is primarily about Jesus. And we don't want to miss that in our look at Elijah. This is a sermon series that is in its 12th week now about the life of Elijah. But we don't want to primarily see Elijah today. We want to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the lessons we learn from Elijah today will point us to Jesus, to see him as great and worthy of our worship and obedience. Before we we dive into that passage, though, I want us to let Arthur Pink remind us of some things that we've learned about Elijah in the last 11 weeks. So there will be five or six things on the screen here that will remind us of where we've been for the last few weeks. Number one, Pink says that Elijah was a man who walked by faith and not by sight. And then he adds that by walking by faith, it's not a mystical or nebulous thing but an intensely practical experience. So this idea that we say Elijah walked by faith and not by sight, it's not something that we can't really put our hands on, but it is intensely practical. Pink says, Elijah heard, believed, and acted. Yes, acted. For faith without works is but a dead and worthless faith. Obedience is nothing but faith in exercise, directed by divine authority and responding to the divine will. So Elijah walked by faith and that faith was demonstrated in his obedience. Secondly, Pink says Elijah was a man who walked in manifest separation from the evil around him. He says nothing is more marked about Elijah than his uncompromising separation from the abounding evil that was all around him. We never find him fraternizing with the people of his degenerate day, but constantly reproving him. And there's no better example of that than in the way he engages and confronts the evil king Ahab and the evil queen Jezebel. He doesn't hang around with them. He doesn't pal around with them. He's not overly friendly toward them. He has respect for the office, respect for the position, but he confronts the evil that they are leading the children of Israel into. Thirdly, Pink says, Elijah was a mighty intercessor. We see Elijah as a man of prayer. In fact, that's the point that James makes of him in the New Testament, that he was a man of powerful prayer. Next Pink says, Elijah was a man of intrepid courage, by which we mean not a natural bravery, but spiritual boldness. And this is really where we started this whole matter with Elijah. And I told you that we need people like that today. Not of necessarily kind of natural courage, but spiritual boldness, willing to stand up and speak the word of God no matter the consequences. And finally, Pink says, Elijah was a man who experienced a sad fall. And this is also recorded for our instruction not as an excuse for us to shelter behind, but as a solemn warning to take heart. We saw that in 1 Kings chapter 19, after the great scene on Mount Carmel, where God proves himself to be God, and Elijah defeats the prophets of Baal. Do you remember this? Right after that, he's threatened by... Queen Jezebel, and he runs for his life, seems to lose his faith. And it is a sad scene of a fall of a man of God. And yet, nonetheless, God continued to use him. God continued um, to restore him and bring him back and put him back in the game to use him again. Pink says, oh, that like grace may be granted both the writer and the reader when tempted to follow not the Lord fully. Um, That we would have a similar experience on our darkest days. That's what he prays. And then I added this about Elijah. One of the lessons that I want you to see about Elijah is that he served faithfully throughout his life for the most part, except that scene in 1 Kings 19, but he didn't get to see the things he wanted to see the most. Elijah served faithfully, but he didn't see the things he wanted to see the most. The nation of Israel didn't really turn back to the Lord. We see them on Mount Carmel saying, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. But there's no massive revival of God's people. They didn't really follow the Lord. They didn't follow him fully or for long. And and in years that followed Elijah, Israel as a kingdom fell apart, it collapsed, and the people of God went into exile. And it could seem like Elijah's life and ministry didn't do much in the long run. That if the people of Israel still end up in captivity, did Elijah's ministry really make a difference? But I want you to remember that none of this was for Elijah to do. It wasn't for Elijah to bring about on his own the difference. He was always to pave the way for, to point the way to, and to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Right? It wasn't that Elijah had come to be the Savior of God's people. It wasn't that Moses came to be the Savior of God's people. Who came to be the Savior of God's people? The Lord Jesus Christ. And Moses and Elijah were pointing the way always to the Lord Jesus Christ. So with all the disappointment of his life, he's brought back into a scene in the New Testament that we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 17. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 today. Matthew 17, 1 through 8. This is what God's Word says. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell, on, fell down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up, and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Uh, for this great scene that shows us the surpassing greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ over Moses, over Elijah, over Peter, James, and John shows us Jesus as supreme. We want to see Jesus like that and we want to respond by falling down on our faces. and We want to experience your grace like you showed to Peter, James, and John in this moment. God, help us today to see Jesus clearly help us to learn from Elijah what it looks like to play our part to point to Jesus to be satisfied with a lifetime of faithfulness regardless of the fruit that we see in this life God help us to stay the course to be steadfast and faithful to not give up to persevere by your grace And ultimately for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we'll march through this text like we usually do. Uh, Verse 1 says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, this note about six days will help us make sense of some of what happens here. So so uh, Matthew is putting this in a chronological context because six days before this scene, Peter made a great profession of faith in that scene where Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And Well, some say you're Elijah and some say you're John the Baptist and others say you're so-and-so, right? One of the prophets. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And what's Peter say? You're the Christ, the Son of God. Peter makes this great profession of faith and then he fumbles the ball entirely. Because right after that, Jesus begins to speak plainly to his disciples about his impending death, burial, and resurrection. And you remember that Peter says, you can't talk like that, Jesus. He like begins to rebuke Jesus for saying such things. And it seems like as much as Peter can articulate who Jesus is, he doesn't really understand who Jesus is. So that six days later gives us some context to what's going on in this text and will help us understand something that happens later on. Notice it says that he took these three guys up on a high mountain by themselves And we're not sure exactly what mountain it was. If you read scholars, they will talk about Mount Tabor. There's a group that says this is Mount Tabor. And there's another group that will say, no, it's got to be Mount Hermon. And uh, do you know the difference between Tabor and Hermon? So that's not an argument that we need to get in today and settle, right? Don't really win anything if I convince you it's Hermon and not Tabor, right? Uh, But it was a mountain. And that mountain is significant because the two Old Testament characters that appear here with Jesus... Had multiple significant experiences up on mountains. These guys know what it's like to meet with God on a mountain, and they are gonna meet with God on this mountain. Notice also it says that Peter, James, and John were there. How many of you were in Small Group Bible Study this morning? Those guys get in on all the good stuff, don't they? Peter, James, and John, they seem to be like the inner circle of Jesus' life, his best friends. They get to see things that the 12 don't get to see. The 12 get to see things that the 100 don't get to see, and on and on and on. And these guys are the very inner circle. And maybe some other time we'll have a talk about how Jesus' life and his relationships really was structured in these concentric circles. He had, he had the 12 that were close to him, but even within that 12, he had three of those guys that he really spent a great deal of time with. And, and even amongst those three, to be honest with you, I think you can pick John out as his very best friend, um, the one who was closest with him and had the most affection for him. Um, Jesus lived his life in various relationships, and there's a lot of lesson for us in that as well. Our life needs to look similar to that, but that's a different lesson for a different day. Jesus has these three guys up on this high mountain by themselves, and look what happens in verse two. It says, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. This is a huge moment. And what a privilege it is for these guys to witness this glorious moment on the mountain. The word, therefore, transfigured, is a super interesting word. Matthew uses it in a passive passive voice he was transfigured it's not as if he transfigured himself but he was transfigured it's the it's the greek word we get our word for metamorphosis from and it's the same word that's used in second corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 which is on the screen It says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of God are being transformed. That's the word transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, uh, just as from the Lord, the spirit. So this idea of us being conformed to the image of Christ, us as believers being changed and conformed, transformed to the image of Christ. It's the same idea of Jesus being changed here. Jesus experienced on this mountain a physical transformation that was visible to his disciples. And one scholar says this transformation was a reminder of his pre-incarnate glory, right? The glory from which he came, it reminds them of that, and it also previews his coming exaltation. So as Jesus is walking around on the earth, he's in this humble, meek human state with us, right? Identifying fully with us, uh, very man, very God, right? One, One with us, able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. But when he's transfigured on this mountain, Those three guys get a glimpse of the glory that Jesus had before he was incarnated, before he came to earth, before he humbled himself to come and live among us. But they also, in that, get a preview of his coming exaltation because Jesus came down to be with us for a time and has gone back up and currently sits at the right hand of the Father in glory, in majesty, and when he comes back again... He will not come back as meek and mild, baby in a manger, but as ruling king on a white horse with a big sword that comes out of his mouth, right, to slay his enemies. Jesus will come back in glory. And these three guys get a glimpse of that on this mountain. In fact, John, John one of the three, will get another glimpse of it later on in a vision on the Isle of Patmos, which we read about in Revelation chapter 1. Read that with me on the screen. It says, Then I, that's John speaking, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face, listen to this, his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. That scene on Patmos, is, as John receives this vision, is eerily similar to the scene that he has on the Mount of Transfiguration. And I've got to think, as he's seen this later on on Patmos, he's got to think, I've seen this before. And he was transported back to that mountain and remembered this great encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. So John, Peter, and James see Jesus glorified, transfigured. A reminder of his pre-incarnate glory and a preview of his coming exaltation. And look what happens next. This is why we're talking about it today. Verse 3 says, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. These two guys are significant on a number of levels. First... They were two of the most prominent Old Testament figures in Jewish life. So if you're going you're gonna to pick out some heavy hitters from the Old Testament in Jewish life, you're going to pick out Abraham maybe, Moses, and Elijah for sure, right? Those two guys are definitely in the top three when it comes to heroes in Jewish life. Secondly, they were representatives of the law on the one hand and the prophets on the other hand. Moses, representing the law, because he received the law on Mount Sinai, and Elijah, representing the prophets, because he is one of the most prominent prophets. Both of which, law and prophets, Moses and Elijah, bore witness always to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember a scene after the resurrection in the Gospels, after Jesus has been raised to life? He, he, he comes to walk along a couple of his disciples who are traveling away from Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus. Maybe you know it by that. And they don't recognize Jesus. And they're like all sad. And Jesus comes walking up alongside them and they don't know who he is. And he basically says, why the long face? And they say to Jesus, are you the only one that's been in Jerusalem these days and doesn't know what has happened, how our master has died? And there are some women who say, yeah, but he's been raised from the dead. But we think they're crazy. And they talk with Jesus for quite some time until he reveals himself to them. And then it says this in Luke chapter 24. Read in verse 25. It says, And he, that's Jesus, said to them, Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, look at verse 27. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. You catch what's going on there? Moses, with the law and all the prophets, all of it, all the scriptures are explaining who he is. And so for Moses and Elijah to be on this mountain, they have always borne witness to who Jesus is, and here they are doing just the same thing. So they represent, Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. Third, both of these guys had seen something of God's glory on a mountain before. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 32 as Moses encounters the Lord at Sinai, actually chapter 32 and 34. Read it, read it with me here in, verse, in chapter 32. The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I've known you by name. Then he, Moses, said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. Moses had an encounter with God where he saw something of the glory with God of God on the mountain at Sinai. And it was accompanied by thunder and lightning and flashes and smoke and all of this terror. Elijah, on the other hand, had a meeting with God on Mount Horeb, right? And we read about that in 1 Kings 19. As God over and over said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? And that scene was somewhat similar to Moses' scene because there was wind and there was earthquake and there was fire. But do you remember the refrain in that text? The Lord was not in the wind. The Lord was not in the earthquake. The Lord was not in the fire. How did the Lord speak to Elijah when he was on the mountain? The still small voice of the soft whisper, right? That's how the Lord spoke to him. But nonetheless, he had an encounter with the Lord on a mountain. So both of these guys have seen something of God's glory on a mountain before. Fourth, both of these guys had experienced massive disappointment at the end of long and faithful service. And this is this is a part that I really want you to get. That both Moses and Elijah had experienced massive disappointment at the end of long and faithful service. Think about it. Moses leads the people out of slavery in Egypt, right? And you would think that being the leader, representative of God, leading the people out of slavery, these people who come out of slavery would be cheering him on every step of the way. Thank you, Moses. We'll follow you, Moses. You've been so good to us, Moses. But what does he encounter when the people come out of Egypt? They grumble and complain. They question him and they challenge him over and over and over, right? All the way, 40 years, they wander in the wilderness complaining and grumbling against Moses. And then at the end, as God gets ready to take them into the promised land, you remember what happens? Because of Moses' sin, he doesn't even get to go into the promised land with them. In fact, the Lord takes him up on a mountain, lets him look into the promised land and basically tells him, you don't get to go. You get to see it, but you don't get to go, and he dies there. It's a pretty massive disappointment, I would say. To live a life faithfully serving the Lord in the midst of hard times, in the midst of uh, antagonism and rebellion and confrontation, he lives this life faithfully serving the Lord, and he doesn't get to see the thing that he wanted to see most. I think we say that about Moses, and I think we can say the same thing about Elijah. He stood firm. He challenged the evil royal family. He challenged those pagan priests. He saw God prove himself over and over and over, and yet the people didn't seem to turn, at least not most of them, and not for long. The kingdom that he was ministering to just keeps going downhill until it falls apart and the people go into exile. So both of these men who are with Jesus on this mountain spent their lives serving the Lord. and What do they have to show for it? And I think their presence on this mountain serves two purposes. First, it serves to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ because you're going to see that he is greater than Elijah and Moses. Like the point of this text, the reason why Matthew tells you this story is to show that Jesus is better than Elijah, that Jesus is better than Moses, right? But I think there is a ministry to Elijah and Moses as they're gathered with Jesus on this mountain as well. They are being ministered to so that they can see that all that they had done prepared the way for this. All of that life of service, all of that faithfulness, all of that perseverance was paving the way for what is in front of them now. The Son of God in the flesh sent to redeem God's people from their sins. What they had longed to see and didn't see in their life, what they had prepared the way for is finally here. It's happening. And I believe the Father sends them down so that they can see that and be encouraged. That this life of faithfulness that they lived was not in vain. But it paved the way for the Messiah. I wonder how much of our toil, our work in the Lord is like theirs. I wonder how much of our work we will never see come to fruition this side of glory. I wonder how many of the seeds that we faithfully plant week in and week out will not produce fruit for generations to come. I wonder, I wonder if at the end of our lives here, we will on some level have disappointment that we didn't get to see what we wanted to see. I wonder if I, I'll just say it, this: I'm preaching to me today in a big way. I wonder if at the end of my life and my ministry and my service, I'll look back and say, Harrisburg didn't change. I think this text gives me hope that even if it feels like we are toiling in vain, we're not. we just just maybe paving the way for something that's going to happen a 100 years from now. And so we must continue to serve faithfully and obediently with perseverance. We've got to trust the promises of God, like Galatians 6, 9. If you've been in my office lately, you will see this text and a few others on my board because I want to be reminded of this every day. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. That's a problem. We will reap if we do not grow weary. It might not be this year, and it might not be next year, and it might not even be here on the earth. We will reap if we do not grow weary. Look at another promise from 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, this is, by the way, that chapter is all about the resurrection, right? It's all about the, the reality, the glorious reality of the resurrection. Like, we don't have a resurrection, we've got no hope, but Christ has been raised from the dead, right? Amen? And so there is hope. And so at the end of it, the concluding thought is, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Like knowing that. It may feel like that. There may be a lot of disappointment in this life as we serve the Lord, but knowing that it's not ultimately in vain. I'm encouraged by the life and ministry of Elijah and Moses that though they didn't get to see what they wanted to see on this earth in their lives, they got to see something better. They got to see something much better on this mountain. One last detail before we move on from this part of the text. Notice at the end of verse 3 it says, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. They were talking with him. What were they talking about? What were Moses, Elijah, and Jesus talking about while Peter, James, and John are standing there watching? Well, Luke tells us. Three gospel writers teach us about this scene and Luke gives us some insight in chapter 9, verse 30. Look at it on the board. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Of his departure. That word departure is translated in other translations as death. Death, departure, that's fine. Same idea here. But what's most interesting interesting to me is that word departure is the same word that's used to refer to the Exodus in in the New Testament. The old testament exodus when it's referred to in the new testament is is that word that is used that's instructive to us right It's connect those dots jesus brings the exodus that moses and elijah could not jesus brings the redemption that moses and elijah could not jesus brings salvation that moses and elijah couldn't jesus brings revival that moses and elijah could not what are they talking about they're talking about deliverance They're talking about departure. They're talking about salvation by grace through faith in Christ. They're talking about his death, burial, and resurrection for sins. And I got to think that Moses and Elijah are like, this is incredible. This is incredible. He's going to die. He's going to die for sins so that men and women and boys and girls who are rebellious and stubborn and deserving of God's wrath can be reconciled to God and forgiven of their sins and go to heaven. This is incredible. That's what they're talking about. And they're rejoicing over the gospel. That's cool, I think. Verse 3, they were talking with him. Verse 4, a little bit of change of tone. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter, always the leader, right? And always quick to speak up, though not always the most insightful guy in the room. Despite his bold profession in the previous chapter, and his massive fumble right after that, he still doesn't really get who Jesus is, right? The main reason why Matthew is telling us about this is to show the superiority of Jesus over everyone else on that mountain. Moses and Elijah were standing in awe of Jesus just like Peter, James, and John were. And yet Peter's like, i only going to build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Like you guys are all on the same level. And another gospel writer says he didn't know what he was saying. Peter didn't realize what he was saying. They're not on the same level. If you're going to build tabernacles, you build one tabernacle. You build one place for Jesus because he's the one that deserves the attention. But more than that, we're not building tabernacles on this mountain. We're not staying here. Jesus didn't come to this mountain to be transfigured and stay there. Why did he come to the earth? To go to Jerusalem and die for our sins. Peter, we're not staying on this mountain. We're coming down on this mountain, and we're going to Jerusalem so that Jesus can die for sins, so that people can be redeemed. Peter doesn't seem to get it. Look at verse 5. It says, while he was still speaking, <laughs> the father interrupts Peter. That's good stuff, right? While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This reminds us of Jesus' baptism, right? It's almost the identical phrasing. It's almost the same scene. And again, this statement from the Father, from the cloud, serves to show the supremacy of Jesus over Elijah and Moses. Notice he says, this is my son. This is my son. Elijah was a servant and a prophet. Moses has the esteemed privilege of being referred to as a friend of God. But he says of Jesus, this is my son. You're my servant, you're my friend, that's my son. And he says, with whom I am well pleased. Now, Elijah and Moses are exemplary guys for the most part. But they weren't always well pleasing to the Lord, right? That's why Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land because of his sin. Elijah has that whole scene of faithlessness in in 1 Kings 19 not always well-pleased with them, but when he speaks of Jesus, when the Father speaks of Jesus, he says, this is my son with whom I am well-pleased. Always. Because he's always obedient, and he's always faithful, and he's always righteous. And then he says, listen to him. Listen to him. He is the one that Moses and Elijah bore witness to. He has an authority that eclipses their authority. You respect Moses, you respect Elijah, listen to Jesus. Because Moses and Elijah were talking about him. Moses and Elijah were simply pointing to him. I think there's something interesting going on there because I think that it's a particular dig at Peter. Pe- Peter's the one speaking here. He's interrupted. Peter's saying, well, oh, it's good for us to be here. Let's build some tabernacles. We'll all just stay here. The father interrupts him, says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Like, stop talking, Peter, and listen to Jesus. That seems to be one of Peter's problems, Right? He doesn't, he doesn't always come to Jesus, at least at this point. He doesn't always come to Jesus with a posture of submission, of listening and hearing. He will confront Jesus. He will say, you can't talk like that. Jesus, you can't talk like that. You're not going to die. It's not the way it works. Peter needed to learn to listen. And you and I need to learn to listen. I am afraid that we often read the scriptures like Peter listened to Jesus. Oh, I can't say that. Read my Bible. Oh, I can't say that. That's not nice. That's not friendly. That doesn't feel good to me. No, no, no. Listen to him. This is my son. I'm well pleased with him. Listen to him. We need to have that kind of posture as we approach the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6 and 7. When the disciples heard this, this voice from the cloud, they fell face down on the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. So good, right? When we have an encounter with God, this kind of fear, this kind of response, it's proper. Why? Why? because of his great holiness and our great sinfulness. Sinful man has an encounter with holy God, falling on your face in fear, it's probably pretty appropriate. But notice Jesus' response to that. He says, don't fear. He reaches down and touches them. He says, don't be afraid. He shows them grace and mercy. And all of this makes us think of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, the train of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim flew around him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the door and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. And the temple was filled with smoke. And I said, I said, woe is me. I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of those angels flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken with, from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. That's the kind of thing we want to happen here. Like when we gather together for worship, that's the kind of thing we want to happen. We want to see the Lord. We want to respond with fear. Woe is me, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm seeing a holy God. I'm seeing myself in the right light, and I've got no business being in the presence of God. And then we want to experience that kind of salvation. We want to see the angel fly down and take a coal and put it on our lips and purge us and forgive us our sins. We want to see Jesus reach down and touch us and say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because of his grace, because of his mercy, don't be afraid. That's the experience that we want to have when we gather together. And then notice what happens at the very end. In verse 8 it says, in lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. That is like the epitome of redundancy there. They saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Could you say it any more clearly? Who was left on the mountain after this? Jesus, only Jesus, right? Moses and Elijah, they're not there. Why? They're the supporting cast. They're the B team. Jesus is the one in the spotlight. Jesus is one who gets all the attention. More evidence of Jesus' superiority. He is the only one left. In the end, only Jesus remains. The focus is on him exclusively, which is exactly what Moses and Elijah would want, right? Moses and Elijah didn't want a tabernacle up there. Moses and Elijah always wanted to make much of Jesus, of his mission, his redemption. And that's what is happening on this mountain. So, the takeaway for us is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Elijah. We've seen some cool stuff from Elijah, right? We've seen power on display. We've seen confrontation. We've seen faithfulness. We've seen faith in obedience. We've seen some cool stuff from Elijah. He raised the dead. But Jesus is better than Elijah. Jesus is the only one that can save you, ultimately. Jesus is the only one who can rescue and redeem you from your sins. Jesus is God in the flesh who came to live among us, to live a life that we could not live, and to die the death that we deserve. Jesus came to die for sinners like you and me because we're all sinners, right? And he did die for sinners. They buried him, and on the third day he rose again in victory over sin, death, and hell. And he will share that victory, that salvation, that forgiveness, that eternal life. He will give it to you as a gift, a free gift of grace that we receive by faith, by trusting and believing by depending completely on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Elijah's cool, Jesus is better because Jesus alone can reconcile you to God. Application number two is that you and I must be willing to serve faithfully even if the reward is never seen here. Must be willing to serve faithfully even if the reward is not seen here, must be willing to serve faithfully, even if we are met with disappointment after disappointment. And there is a likelihood that that'll happen. There's a likelihood that if you serve the Lord, Lord faithfully, you won't get to see everything you want to see. But we must serve him anyway. And then thirdly, know your role. Know your role, that you are not the Messiah. You only bear witness to the Messiah. Be like John the Baptist, who was like Elijah, Right? John the Baptist you said, oh, no, no, I'm not the Christ. There's one coming after me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I must become less and he must become more. Know that that's where you're at in the process. You are not the Lord. You are not the Messiah. You are not the Christ. You are merely a servant pointing people to him. Know that role and be willing to embrace it. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this great scene. Help us to see Jesus high and lifted up. There's no one like him. Help us to see Jesus as the only savior, the one who died and rose again. I pray for men and women and boys and girls in this room who, who don't know you, who aren't trusting in Jesus. Pray that today you'll open their eyes to see your holiness, their sinfulness, and the sacrifice of Christ on their behalf. And I pray that you will give them faith to trust in Jesus and repentance to turn away from their sins. And for those of us who do know you, help us to serve faithfully, even if we don't see the reward here. Help us to embrace our role like John the Baptist. Be ready always to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ, to get ourselves out of the spotlight and be ambassadors for Christ and his kingdom. For your glory, in Christ's name we pray.